Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you again for this day. Thank you for your mercy, your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. And certainly, Lord, we thank you for the deep, deep love of Jesus, Lord, the the love that uh, will not let us go, Lord, the love that uh, laid down his life for his friends. And so, Father, we thank you so much today that we're reminded of that love. And we just pray that you would cause us to love you and to love your son even more as we uh, endeavor to understand uh, more fully his redemption, uh, his work of redemption on the cross. Bless our time, Father. Give us understanding and illumination. Help us to see clearly what your word has to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Oh, there we go. Check one, two. There we go. Right? Okay, good. Well, everyone, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. That's kind of where we're going to spend our time today. And uh, remember what we've been doing uh, as of late. Let me see if there's a black one in here. As of late, we've been really trying to establish um, what is come to be known as the redemptive historical... Uh, approach to hermeneutics, the redemptive historical approach. And we've looked at a lot of different things um, already just in terms of this, but we, we, basically, we basically concluded a couple of things about the redemptive historical approach that have to do with Christ. And that is that uh, uh, Scripture is both Christotelic and Christocentric. So we talked about uh, the Christocentric idea, right? And what was the Christocentric idea about? What, what does it mean that the Bible is Christ-centered or Christocentric? You see Christ all the way through. That you see, you see, that's right, that you see Christ all the way through, uh, that Christ is basically the center, right? He is the center. Uh, he is the, fo- the, the focus, I guess we can say it that way. He is the focus. Uh, that's another way of thinking about it. But there's also this aspect to it. Uh, and that is that the Bible is also Christotelic. And Christotelic comes from the word telos, which means goal. So Christ is not only the center of the Bible, but he is also the goal of Scripture. right? He is uh, what all of Scripture is moving towards. Uh, this is really fascinating if you think about it. Um, uh, how much of the Old Testament is devoted to the people of Israel. Think of it that way. How much of the Old Testament is devoted to that? Uh, a little bit of it? <laughs> Most of it, right? All of it. We could even say all of it, right? But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make the case that, in fact, because of the redemptive historical nature of the Bible and because of the Christocentric and Christotelic purpose of the Bible, um, that even Israel is not the center or the goal of Scripture, Um, which is remarkable, right? Because so much, um, I guess, biblical real estate is devoted to the Jewish people, devoted to Israel. And uh, and yet, um, I would say, because remember, a feature of redemptive historical hermeneutics is that we're interested not just in the human author, but we're also interested in the divine, uh, the divine intention, right? 
the divine intention of Scripture, or uh, you could even say the divine authorship of Scripture. So in other words, we understand that the Bible is written from a redemptive historical perspective that has Christ as the center, Christ as the goal, and the way that we come to conclude this is because we understand that even behind the human author of the Bible, Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I don't want to get in trouble today. (laughs) Is the divine authorship of Scripture. Um, That's very important, by the way, because we we saw the the grammatical historical approach, right? The grammatical historical approach of the Bible is, is, is essentially dealing with the human authorship of Scripture. We're asking questions like, uh, who wrote this book? Uh, where was that person when they wrote it? What was his, uh, what was his uh, background? What was his situation? What was the situation of the human audience? Uh, what, what did he mean by what he said? And so we analyze the words and the grammar. That is the grammatical, historical approach uh, to Scripture. Um, but we also understand that Scripture is what the Bible calls theonoustos. It is inspired of God, Right? It is actually God-breathed, according to the Bible. And actually, um, there are so many texts, and we saw many of them last couple weeks, uh, that deal with this issue that behind the human author is actually the divine author of Scripture that is essentially orchestrating and inspiring and empowering all of it uh, so that David spoke by the Spirit, right? And so um, uh, we, we see that in Hebrews, for example. Hebrews chapter 2, for example, is a good example of that where it talks about uh, Jesus speaking, and then what Jesus spoke is actually a direct quotation from Psalm 22. (laughs) So that's amazing how in the mind of the author of Hebrews, Jesus spoke Psalm 22. (laughs) That's really remarkable. Also, in uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 5, we are told that when he comes into the world, he says... Right? He says, you have not delighted in sacrifice and burnt offering, right, all that, but a body you have prepared for me. And that's referring to Christ, Christ speaking. So just really amazing uh, to see that. So what we've tried to establish, therefore, is that when we're talking about redemptive historical hermeneutics, what we're talking about is the gospel, essentially, right? The gospel in both testaments, right? That the gospel is not just an Old Testament idea, right? And so that in that way, we said the gospel is a trans-testamental, right? Trans-testamental, I'm glad I did it up there, not next to the word, because <laughs> it's a trans-testamental gospel. In other words, the gospel is such that it transcends both testaments of the Bible. And we looked at that uh, partially last week when we looked at Romans chapter 1, where there the apostle very clearly says that the gospel was concerning God's son who he promised, or the gospel was promised beforehand concerning God's son. And then he talked about the different aspects of the Son and what was promised. But it was promised beforehand in the prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. Um, it, don't, don't forget, as you study your Bible, do not forget that the only Scripture that the, old, that the New Testament authors had uh, as, as far as to their disposal, 
you know, go down to Lifeway and pick up a manuscript, <laughs> right? The only Bible, if you would, that they had to their disposal at the time was the Old Testament. So when Paul talks about scripture, he is primarily thinking about Old Testament scripture. Um, there is no New Testament yet. The New Testament is still being written. Uh, sure, there's an apostolic doctrine, all of that, and the New Testament makes statements about Peter's, Paul's letters, equating them with scripture, of course. But that canon, that part of scripture is yet taking shape when the authors of scripture are writing. So when the Bible, when Paul says, according to scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's remarkable. It's remarkable because he talks about so much uh, uh, gospel theology according to the scriptures. Uh, all throughout the book of Acts, um, you, you have your hand there, right? 1 Corinthians 15. But in Acts chapter 26, um, just to maybe uh, just to maybe give a proof text, Acts 26, 22 says this. So having obtained help from God, I stand this day testifying both to small and great, Watch this now. Stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. You see that? Everything that Paul preached, <laughs> he said, is nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. That's, the prophets and Moses is just short for the whole Old Testament. So what he's saying is that the whole Old Testament testifies to these facts right here. Watch this. That, and then um, that's technically known as a hati clause, a hati of content. In other words, that of content. Here comes the content of what was um, contained in the prophets and Moses. That Christ would suffer. And that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Really? Wow. So I want you to rack your brain right now and think, can you, like the Apostle Paul, can you, like the Apostle Paul, can you right now go to the Old Testament and give me those numerous things? Can you show me from the Old Testament that Christ had to suffer? Can you show me his resurrection from the dead? And can you show me that because of the resurrection from the dead, he would proclaim light to the Jews and the Gentiles. <laughs> That's pretty extensive, right? Um, and it, anybody want to stand up and try? I'd like to. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. <laughs> Covers everything, right? Isaiah 53, Psalm 42, Psalm, 9, uh, Psalm 89, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, Psalm 2. We can go on and on. What is it? 110. Psalm 110. Absolutely. Psalm 110 is important. Why? Because Psalm 110 is uh, talking about Jesus' resurrection and exaltation, right? Which is quoted throughout the book of Acts. Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, Psalm 110, so remarkable, you guys, because uh, Psalm 110 really encapsulates all of the work of Christ. I'm tempted to go there right now, but I, I won't. I'll, I'll stick to... I'll stick to the program. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's turn there. As a proof text for redemptive historical hermeneutics that has Christ both as centric and as telic. He is both the center, the focus, 
of the scriptures and he is the goal of the scriptures. Uh, that's really what we're trying to substantiate here, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4 is what we're uh, really looking at here. Somebody want to read that for us? So who, who's there right now? You want to read that? Anybody? Chris, you want to read that back there? Yeah, nice and loud so we can all hear you. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, as of the first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, that's right. So, obviously, that is going to be the the, 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 the real um, focus, that term, according to the scriptures. Um, because, of course, he's talking about Old Testament scriptures. Now, let me just kind of... Let me just kind of outline this text for us because there's several things that are given to us uh, about what we can say is the transtestamental gospel, okay? And there's three things here that are given to us. The efficacy, right? The efficacy of the gospel, the priority of the gospel, and finally, ah, yes, the components, the components uh, of the gospel. That is what's given to us here in this text. Number one, the efficacy of the gospel. I want you to understand that because this is crucial to see that this gospel, this transtestamental gospel, this gospel according to the scriptures is the gospel that saves them. It is the gospel that is fully, fully efficacious. It is efficacious in a number of ways. It's efficacious, number one, as Paul's uh, gospel that he preached. In other words, when the Apostle Paul went to the cities, went to the towns, went to the synagogues, went throughout Rome. Remember, the Apostle Paul covered the known Roman world in 30 years in his missionary journeys. It took him 30 years to travel what was known as the known world at that time. And he took the gospel everywhere into all these different regions. Now, what he took there was the transtestamental gospel, a gospel that was rooted and grounded in the Old Testament. It was, it was the gospel that was both preached by Paul, but notice what he also says. It was also the gospel that was received by the people. Now, what? What is this language of preaching, receiving? Is that just saying they just believed it? Yes, of course, they, they did believe it. But the language of receiving is the language, really, uh, uh, of, of passing down or handing down tradition. It's the apostolic tradition that was handed down to them. It was the one that was received by them, and here it is the one that they stand in. And so... It's totally efficacious. It is totally sufficient for their faith. Um, let's, let's maybe take this on a personal uh, level. Turn with me to first, uh, excuse me, Second Timothy. Okay, Second Timothy. Second um, Timothy, chapter three. Go from uh, a preaching of the gospel and an efficacious. 
nature of the gospel as it pertains to all the Corinthians, and then we can make that by extension to all the churches. It was sufficient for them. But now let's look carefully um, at just one example of one person, right? Namely, Timothy. Look at uh, chapter 3. Oh, boy. I guess we can start in verse 13. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from, from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. I think that's a bad translation, uh, the word writings. Does anybody have the sacred scriptures in your text? What, what, what is that? Who has the sacred scriptures in the translation? Anybody? I got sacred writings. Sacred writings. Well, I'm just saying because it is graphe, which is more of a technical term for scripture. It should be scripture. It's the same word that appears in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where it says, according to the scriptures. And so, of course, and in the context, I'm not sure why they translate it that way, but in the context, um, it is definitely referring to scripture. But notice that the sacred scriptures, look at the efficacy, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, watch this, through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. So Timothy, from a wee little lad, was to be, was to stay in the same uh, theology, the same gospel, to make it easy, right? Uh, 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 Timothy was told, Timothy, false teachers are coming. These evil imposters will get worse and worse and worse. You, on the other hand, you are to continue in that very same thing that you received, that you, that you have, that you have learned, that you became convinced of. And guess what? This is, this is, this is what you have learned since you were a child from the sacred writings. Well, when Timothy was a child, the only writings that his mother would have discipled him, his mother and his grandmother um, would have discipled, Lewis and Eunice would have discipled him from his homeschool curriculum was the Old Testament, right? <laughs> he didn't have a New Testament when he was a child. He had the Old Testament, but guess what? Here we're told that the gospel of the Old Testament was enough to lead him to salvation that the wisdom of salvation that is found in faith in Jesus Christ. That's amazing to see the efficacy of this gospel from the Old Testament. Um, okay, now back to 1 Corinthians chapter. Any questions on that? Questions, statements, comments, anything? Sure. Any statements about that at all? Sure, nothing? Any questions at all? Yes, sir. But it says, give you the wisdom that mm -hmm. leads to salvation. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit more? I think it's just talking about the knowledge of salvation. It gives you this. It gives you sufficient revelation to know that salvation is found by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, I think that's what it's. I think that's what it's saying. Um, so, <clears throat> yes, sir. It's also a, a good text to. Defend solo scripture, or is it definitely specific to? 
Definitely, because the verse uh, goes on to say, right, verse 16, all scriptures inspired of God, profitable for correction, instruction, reproof, you know, all of that, so that the man of God would be adequate, fully equipped, lacking nothing. So, yeah, definitely. What is going to make a man fully adequate to the point where he lacks nothing? The scripture. It is the scripture in the scripture alone. Um, so, let's move on to the priority the priority of this gospel. Because notice the way that Paul speaks of what he is laying down for the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse, well, let's, let's just read it again, verse 1, right? It says, I make known to you, brethren. And notice what he's revealing. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. You see how Paul had no problem whatsoever talking about the gospel in relation to, according to the scriptures, <laughs> Right? Um, that's why I think, not to not to belabor the point, but that's why I think it's such a positive thing what's happening today in, in the broader Reformed Evangelical Church is that um, there is a tsunami of literature literally now being written that talks about the gospel in the Old Testament. Uh, matter of fact, there's a series of books called The Gospel According to the Old Testament. Um, I have a ton of them, and basically what they do is they just take a, a book or a theme or an idea or something um, uh, from the Old Testament, and they show all of the different gospel-centered, all the Christocentric, Christotelic connections that are to be found. I, I, I read a couple of them cover to cover, and they're they're fantastic. Uh, we read one on Joshua for our study. for the uh, We went through the men's study with it, and then we, we did another one or I read another one on the book of Hosea, the gospel in Hosea, which was just amazing. But uh, it, it's just encouraging to see people talking about um, that, that the Old Testament is, is, is presenting to us, just like Paul is saying here, making known to us the gospel. Because if we can get Christians to understand that they are people of the whole book, not just the last little end of it, but they're people of the whole book, right? Then we can um, we can really have uh, a church and uh, a disciple and disciples and Christians uh, whose faith is going to be really, really, um, uh, really, really robust, you know. And you're going to be able to look at the Bible, I think, in a fresh and reviving way, where it doesn't matter what book of the Old Testament you're at. You're going there to find contemporary truth for your life. That's what I love about it more than anything. And it's a Christ-centered truth. This gospel, if you go back to this here, he says here, he qualifies that this gospel that he made known to them, that he preached to them, that they received, in which they stand, and watch this, by which you are saved. Talk about the efficacy, right? If you hold fast the word was which preached to you unless you believed in vain. He says, for I delivered to you. So you see that word delivered? That word delivery literally comes from uh, paradidomy, which para, it's, a, it's kind of a cognate of paradosis, which is where we get the word tradition. And so this is what I mean, that this is like Paul is speaking about official apostolic doctrine that was handed down to them by the preaching of the apostles, and in this case, by his own preaching. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance. There's the priority, what we can call the priority of the gospel, 
what I also received. See the language of receive there, right? Again, there it is. It's just this language of the official orthodox preaching and teaching of the apostolic church that he received. Now, here's a question for you. Where did Paul receive his gospel? What's that? From God, from Christ. Any scriptures come to mind? Galatians. Galatians. We're saying Galatians. Okay. Yeah, find that for us. That's a, that's a good relevant text, you know. So that's important. Like, where where did Paul receive this transtestamental gospel? This gospel that was according to the Old Testament scriptures, right? Yeah, Galatians one eleven. Very good. Yeah. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's one of those important uh, genitive phrases, right? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that the revelation came through Jesus Christ? Some people take that position that Jesus appeared to him, revealed the gospel to him, that Jesus himself directly was revealing the gospel truth to Christ, or was it the revelation concerning Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ? What do you think? <laughs> and that's where uh, that's where grammars uh, talk about a plenary genitive that basically says it's both. When you can't decide, it should be both, right? Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. But let's go back to what we're really talking about. <laughs> um, so the priority of this Old Testament gospel is, uh, is glorious because in this priority, what he's saying basically is that inherent in the Old Testament itself, intrinsic to the Old Testament, is the tradition that Paul is handing down to them. Let me read you a quote really quickly here by um, Lane Tipton, who has I think Lane Tipton here recently has helped me more um, in many ways in biblical theology than almost anybody else, maybe aside from G.K. Beale. But Lane Tipton says, Jesus' death is not a brute fact. It is not a tragic accident or a random surd in history. Rather, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Now, this is going to be important here because what he is saying basically is this that the Old Testament scriptures are basically putting a, laying down a, a paradigm into which Jesus must conform. The Old Testament is written in such a way that it is literally constraining Jesus to conform to it. In other words, it is not that the authors of the New Testament saw what Jesus did, went back to the Old Testament to try to fit in and find places that would prove that what Jesus did was actually biblical. No, this is, um, this is getting to the, um, what is known as the per se reading of Scripture, the, the intrinsic or the inherent reading of the Old Testament. That when you read the Old Testament, the intrinsic meaning of the Old Testament is Christocentric, Christological. In other words, in the book of Hebrews, you guys should know this, because the book of Hebrews is showing us that constraint, right? Uh, turn with me to Hebrews, um, Hebrews chapter 8, 
if you would. Excuse me, Hebrews 9. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9 are both parallel, right? Because the copies of the things. But, 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 but notice the language here. The language um, of divine necessity. Remember how biblical typology works. Okay, we'll come back to this in a second. Verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. That's talking about with, uh, what, um, what is that talking about? I don't want to give it away. <laughs> so what's that talking about? When he says, it's necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. To be cleansed with what? To be cleansed with what? Anyone? Marianne? The blood of what? In this, that's right. <laughs> so what we have here, watch now, folks, up here, right? What we have here, remember, is the type, right? And verse twenty-four here, or verse twenty-three, is talking about the type that the type needed to be cleansed with the blood of bulls and goats, animal blood, right? And here, and here, look at what happens here. It says, but. Uh, verse 23, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Isn't that remarkable? So that what that is pointing to now, watch this now. It's pointing now to the anti-type, right? It's, po- it's saying that the type in the Old Testament had to be cleansed with animal blood. Why? Uh, excuse me. It needs to be done this way. But the actual heavenly realities demanded a superior cleansing, namely the blood of Jesus, which is the fulfillment known as the anti-type of the type. But this is, this, is the, this is the marvelous thing, and I've pointed this out before, right? That the anti-type itself, notice, is a heaven-earth trajectory. It's saying the anti-type actually corresponds to the archetype, to the archetype, um, that's the wrong, that's just an I, right? What do they mean by archetype? Anyone know? Archetype stands for what? Original. That's right, original. Our case, right? The first or the original, right? So we're going back to the original type. The archetype that gave birth, as it were, to the type on earth, the historical type, we can even, just to make it easier, the historical type, and when the anti-type comes, guess what it corresponds to? It corresponds to heaven and not to earth. In other words, what's going on here is that the heavenly archetype, the reality of what happened in, in of what the administration of heaven is all about, namely an open access to God, a pure standing before God, a a a a um, a, a, a perfect uh, a relationship and a perfect harmony with God, only happens through what Jesus did on earth. And so this is what Jesus is corresponding to. This is a mere historical type of the real thing. But the real thing when it happens in history is, is, is ultimately um, 
relating to a heavenly reality, not an earthly one. You see that? So Jesus' historical fulfillment of the historical typology, right, is corresponding not to the historical reality. That was just a type. It's just a shadow. It's corresponding to a heavenly reality. And that's why it's important for us to see that in the gospel, when the gospel tells us, for example, that, or as Lane Tipton is talking about here, that the death of Jesus is not just an accident, it's not a brute fact. What does he mean by it's not a brute fact? Anybody understand that? Lane Tipton says the, God, the, the death of Jesus is not a brute fact. Not yes, sir? Not a bad thing history. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, not just something terrible that happened in history that hurt people's feelings of something that was wicked and cruel. Uh, not quite. Okay. Not quite. No, no, that's okay. It's like they didn't take his life. He laid it down. No, not quite. A brute fact is something that stands alone. A brute fact means something that is not connected to anything else. Okay, that's what that's what you mean by brute fact, right? Uh, we could say, I mean, not to dive over to apologetics, but there is no such thing as a brute fact, right? Is there a brute fact? In all the universe, is there a brute fact? Something that stands alone without any connection to anything else? Absolutely not. No. Uh, that was the whole premise of... Bonson and Van Til's presuppositional apologetics was that there is no such thing as a brute fact. Everything is connected ultimately to uh, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, the knowledge of God, the revelation of God. Everything is ultimately connected um, and dependent on the knowledge of God. So in the same way, the death of Jesus is connected to the typology of Scripture. It is connected to the revelation of the Old Testament. That's what it's connected to. Now, let's get into the, some of the nuts and bolts, okay? Notice, though, you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, okay? Notice, and please, feel free at any time just to ask any question or to ask me to repeat anything, because the whole point of this is that you get it, that you understand what is being said here. He says, He delivered of first importance what I also received... Now watch here, as we get into the components of this gospel, this trans-testamental gospel that spans the testaments, right? Notice what he says here, that Christ died for sins, for our sins, excuse me, the, the very word I was trying to emphasize was our, and I skipped it. So, <laughs> that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You see that? Now, no, no, let's just stop there, because what do we have right away as a component of the trans-testamental gospel? What, what is he saying there? What does this refer to? The substitutionary death. That's right. That's right. The substitutionary death of Christ. That, that's right. And, 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 and what is he saying there about this substitutionary death? That it is also... Um, that it is also for what? For atonement, right? It's also to atone for our sins, right? It's one thing to stand in our place, it, but it's another thing also to remove our sin, right? So this is what is known as the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Christ. 
And what Paul is saying is that this work, this substitutionary atonement, death of Christ, was revealed where? In the scriptures. We could just say, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. Um, I mean, how essential is this? I mean, the substitutionary atonement, death of Christ, is as essential to the gospel as any other component of the gospel, right? I mean, it's absolutely essential. So we have atonement being talked about. And, and what are some verses? Real quick, I have, a, I, have a, uh, I have a collection of verses here. So, so, so for, this, um, for this component, what time is it? For this component, what are some proof texts that, that you would say... Uh, according to the scriptures, and these are the scriptures that talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Isaiah 53, that's a good one, of course. That's right. Isaiah 53, right? Um, let me know if you find a verse in Isaiah that you would say corresponds to this. But yes, Isaiah 53, you have the suffering servant. And let me make a case for this. What's going on in Isaiah 53? We always throw that out, right? Isaiah 53. (laughs) But what did we just say about a brute fact? Is Isaiah 53, therefore, a brute fact? Of course not. Isaiah 53 is the culmination of the servant theology of Isaiah. So what so what we have to um, what we have to uh, understand is that Isaiah 53 is actually in league with an entire theology of the atoning sacrificial death of Christ the suffering servant in Isaiah. So you find the suffering servant theology I think it starts around chapter 40 and it doesn't end until it gets to chapter 53 that's the high point. But what I'm saying is that all of Isaiah, all over the place, presents uh, these types of realities to us. So, anything else? What about outside of Isaiah? Any other scriptures that help us with this Old Testament component of the trans-testamental gospel of the substitutionary death of Christ and his atoning work? Jonathan? The flood account of Genesis 7. The flood account of Genesis 7. Explain. Okay, so it speaks to this in the sense of its deliverance from the wrath of God. That's right. Okay, so I, 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 would, I like that. Anybody else like that? At Genesis chapter 7, right? The flood, right? I'll put that up there, the flood. Which, which brings us to a different thing, and that is this. That when we're looking at, at according to the scriptures, when he said according to the scriptures... <laughs> Talk about generalities. <laughs> According to the scriptures, you have, you have then prophecies, types, shadows, institutions. Remember, we talked about that. What, what is an institution that will help us here? What is an institution in the Old Testament that helps us to see the sacrificial, vicarious, atoning death of Christ? The temple. The temple? What about the temple? I'm trying to get more specific. Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. So we're thinking specifically, as my markers 
failing me here. Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. Right? I just I just reach, reach for the Day of Atonement because um, in Leviticus 16, that really is the high point of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Once again, like with Isaiah 53, it's not just Isaiah 53, it's all servant theology in Isaiah. Same way, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, it's not just the Day of Atonement, it's all the sacrificial system that is attached to it. Right? So that the burnt offering, the peace offering, the meal offering, uh, the sin offering, all the offerings, right, are all tethered to Christ and they help us to understand that all of Scripture is either Christocentric or Christotelic, right? The soul of the Day of Atonement, the soul of the Day of Atonement is Christ-centered. The function of the sacrificial system is Christotelic. In other words, the purpose of all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament are ultimately leading us to the greatest sacrifice of all, so it has Christ as the ultimate goal of the sacrifices right, of that imagery. So lots of things here. Now, second, because I'll probably run out of time. Now, second, what's the second component? Back to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That he died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried... And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, two things are mentioned there. Number one, that he was buried. Right? The burial of Jesus Christ. How often do we, how often do we think about the burial of Jesus? Think, just, right? Think about it. How often do we really stop to meditate on the significance of Jesus' burial. But I'll remind you, brothers and sisters, that this whole presentation of the transtestamental gospel is a presentation that Paul identifies with great priority. I delivered to you a first importance, right? Uh, first importance, that, that Greek phrase literally means the most important things. That's the way the B-Dad translates it, a, a lexicon. Um, in other words, these are not just um, uh, first importance, you know, um, among other important things, right? This is the most important stuff of the gospel right here. And so the burial is not a throwaway detail. Can, can we agree to that? The burial is not a throwaway detail in the gospel, as my um, trusty little marker here failed me miserably. Please, not purple. Oh, purple works great. I have to use purple. <laughs> I'm thinking back there of all the colors. Please, not purple. <laughs> it's just the man in me. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about the burial. What significance does the burial hold in the gospel? Jonathan? It proves that he was dead. That's right. Amen. And it prepares us for his resurrection from the dead. Right? It's not just a resurrection. The authors of scripture are very careful to point out resurrection from the dead. Actually, Romans chapter, chapter 
1, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, when it talks about uh, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness from the resurrection of the dead, the literal Greek phrase is literally from among the dead ones. <laughs> Amazing, right? Uh, it's just showing you that, that Christ transcends the realm of death, right? Um, but there's, there's more here. There's more here. I want you to use your New Testament knowledge now to understand what does the burial signify? What will it ultimately signify, redemptively speaking, salvifically speaking? Baptism. Baptism, okay. And where you go, where'd you get that from? I saw your wife whispering in your ear back there. Romans chapter, let's turn there real quick. Romans chapter 6. We learn after the fact, brothers and sisters, that the burial of Jesus is also <clears throat> symbolic of our redemption in terms of our union with Christ. Right? Why did he go down into the grave? He went down into the grave not only for us, but in a symbolic fashion with us. Or let's say that backwards. We were with him. Right? We were represented in the burial of Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin live in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? What's going to happen here? in verse 4, is that burial and death are essentially going to be interchangeable. Okay, Therefore, we have been, here it is, buried with him. You see that? Mm -hmm. Through baptism into his death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, uh, we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, Boy, there's so much here. There's so much here in, in eight minutes. He says, for we have become united with him. There we go. We have become, there's a dual analogy going on here. We have been united with him in the likeness of his death. And that death we've learned from verse 4 now incorporates burial. He says, certainly we, will be also, we, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, here it is, our old self was crucified with him. In order, watch this, in order that the body of sin might be done away with. You see there the body being done away with? Doesn't that provoke imagery of burial? Mm -hmm. Putting the body away. Wrapping it up and putting it away. Right? It's not just symbolic the fact that Jesus died, certainly. But it's more than that. It's that putting the body of Jesus away means that our sins were buried with him there done away with in him. Our old man is buried with him in the tomb, right? And when we come out with him, we arise with him in newness of life. That's, um, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about. His burial, in other words, his burial is analogous to our union with Christ and the doing away of our body of sin. Now let's bring this back home. Because if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, these phrases go together. Burial and 
that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So burial is likewise according to the scriptures. Here's my question for you. (laughs) You thought this one was tough. (laughs) Where are you going to go according to the scriptures to show the burial of Jesus? Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Very good. Okay, Doug. What is Psalm 16? What verses do you remember? 9 and 10. 9 and 10. Critical. Because there we see that the burial was not Jesus' proper place, right? It was not, uh, that is not where God would ultimately leave his son. Was, it was buried in the tomb, right? To, for what reason, as Psalm 16 says? So that he would not undergo decay. So that he would not see corruption, you see? Even Jewish tradition uh, began to say that on the third day, uh, the body would begin to undergo irreparable decay in the tomb, right? Um, uh, you know, again, Jewish tradition not even attempted to be scientific, more symbolic than anything. But what it's saying is that according to, according to this messianic psalm, God would not leave his son in the tomb. Um, what else? Anything else that is reminiscent to you of Jesus being buried? Yes, sir. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17, right? In Jonah, he is swallowed up, and that is quoted for us in where? In Matthew 12, verses 39. I'll put it up here. 39 and 40. Jesus says that, in fact, what happened to Jonah was a living parable, if you would, a sign of of the fact that Jesus, uh, just like uh, just like Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so too Jesus would have to be uh, uh, in the heart of the earth, right? In the in the belly of the earth, he'd have to be buried uh, for three days, right? And on the third day, and then, can you believe this? How shameful! I don't have time for the resurrection, <laughs> right? Resurrection. Okay, so resurrection, very quickly. He also says, right, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He didn't just say he was raised. He says he was raised on the third day. See? And where do we have third day Old Testament uh, specification or... Where in the Old Testament do we have any references to not only the resurrection, you might be able to pull something out for that, but where do we have a reference to the third day? I mean, you got a Bible study over there. You got a study Bible, bro. Come on. You're busting out the study Bible over there. I see that fat dog right there. Yeah, yeah. So, so that would be a good. <laughs> that would be a good passage. It would be Hosea chapter six. What is it? Uh, Hosea six one and two. Right. Hosea chapter six one and two. This is fascinating. Because how in the world you read Hosea chapter six verse one and two? It's like, what are you talking about? That's talking about the the the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on the third day. 
Now remember what we've said about Jesus, that Jesus is the true Israel of God, right? And that what was true of Israel on a corporate level is true of Jesus, many times, on a messianic level. Hosea does this several times in the book of Hosea. He does it again in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Right? We know that's talking about Israel. That's almost a, that's an illusion going right back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 25, I think it is. Right? No, verse 23 and 24. That out of Egypt I called my son. So Israel, here the prophet Hosea, is seeing that redemptive event in Exodus and saying, just like that, again, Israel will be in the future because they're going to try to go and hide in Egypt for safety and flee there to escape their enemies. He's going to call them out of there. But guess what? That historical event was just a sign or a symbol or a type or a shadow of the true Israel of God, Jesus Christ, not only going, having to flee to Egypt because of his enemies, but God calling him out of Egypt to return to Jerusalem out of Egypt. And Matthew chapter 2, verse 15 uh, makes that correlation. Um, so Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Um, anybody there? Anybody there, Hosea? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You there, Trish? Yeah. You want to read it? What part? Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, yes. for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has mm. wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Let me read the next one. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. So like corporate ethnic national Israel who will suffer a, who will suffer an affliction, a wound by the hand of Yahweh, and then on the third day be raised back up to life as it were, Jesus to a much more, uh, to a much greater degree, rather, in the same way, will have to undergo trial and affliction at the hand of his father and then be raised back up to life on the third day. Amazing. Just amazing. Right? Questions? Sir, do you have a question? Lee, I didn't mean to skip over you. but Oh, I was just thinking that um, a verse 2 there where it said, after two days you will revive us. On the third day you will rise us up. That's the same thing back over there in Romans. That's right. That's actually the final step of the process, right? Is that this has significance not just for um, Messianic Israel, Christ, but it also has um, it also has significance for true Israel, the Church. So it's kind of like it goes in steps. And I know that's kind of a controversial statement, but you know, I definitely believe that the Church is spiritual, true Israel comprised of Jew and Gentiles now, you know, um, so don't mean to leave off on a point of controversy, but uh, <laughs> I've taken enough time, and I hate to rush that last point, maybe we'll come back and follow up with it, Lord willing, next week, but uh, please, if you guys have questions, write them down, bring them next week, um, ask your questions, no matter how hard or how easy they are, uh, no matter if you just want to know a scripture verse or something, but Write it down, bring them back up, bring them back in here so we can deal with them in here. Don't be shy, don't be afraid. Write them down, that way, you know, it's not as scary. You can just read a piece of paper. (laughs) God bless you.